This is Matthew Quirk, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today in the co-host seat is Naomi Hirahara. Naomi, it's so good to see you. So good to see you too, and hear your voice. So you have a new book out, Clark and Division. Uh, this is a whole new thing from you, separate from any of your uh, series work. And the title is An Intersection of Streets in Chicago. So what is a Southern California woman like you doing writing about 1944 Chicago? <laughs> right? Yeah, a little bit scary. I think I've actually been working towards writing a book that's not in my backyard. You know, I've traveled to Hawaii in one of the series. And so I think it gave me more courage to travel back in time and into a place that, you know, I really haven't lived. Um, The story of Clark and Division is it follows a family, a Japanese-American family that lived in a place called Tropical, which is for Angelinos right around Atwater. And then during World War II, were forcibly removed to Manzanar, a detention camp there. And then the older sister, it's really a story of two sisters. The older sister is released early to Chicago, which was the number one destination for Japanese-Americans from these 10 camps across the nation. Huh. Yeah, so there's a tragedy that occurs and the rest of the family goes to Chicago. And now it's up to the younger sister, who's always been the shadow of her older sister, to find out what happened, as well as to carry her family through this tra- traumatic time. So that's the gist of the story. And, and very often you write about these these real historical events that reverberate uh, into the present and you spotlight events that not a lot of people know about. I mean, Japanese American history and their experience is not necessarily something that's really taught in uh, in history books <laughs> as much as it should be, right? Yeah, and I really love um, the mystery genre because I think it's like been the perfect, I call it container for my stories. But I think in the case of when there's a crime that affects your family, affects your circle, you can't just sit there and be in denial of what things, what's happening to you. You have to kind of charge ahead. Our protagonists have to have agency, right? Because what's a story? If someone just sitting, yeah. you know, like my Masarai, he's a Hiroshima survivor. Is If he's just sitting in, the, in his easy chair, not doing anything, that's not much of a story. So right. I think the crime kind of propels, the, the actual physical crime, propels them out of their chair to nose around and unveil these larger issues that are happening beyond just their family. Yeah, I mean, you obviously, you know your history very well. And I, I wonder, I mean, do you go looking for these moments of history to try to inspire a story? Or do you sort of stumble upon them and then stories grow out of these things that you find? I think it's stumbling. And I think if you talk to a lot of journalists who are crime writers, or historians, usually, you know, it's just that one weird nugget that kind of, you know, keeps you there. Even even just a, a thing like tropical. I was interviewing someone years ago, and this older gentleman said he was from there. I go, where's that, you know? I, I guess in my mind, I guess, you know, it might be good for writers to kind of collect those kind of things that make you think, Huh? You know? Yeah. You know, it's not only about a weird, you know, way to kill somebody. <laughs> it's also just a, a a thing that you never knew about. 
for us as mystery and crime writers, there's not so many different ways where a crime happens and it's unveiled. You know, we have to kind of find these other surprises um, that makes our readers want to follow us, you know, and say, well, what what kind of thing is, you know, Naomi Hirohara going to show us now? Yeah, definitely. Well, okay. In, In writing a book like Clark and Division, who is more likely to tell you whether or not you got the details right or wrong? Is it going to be the Japanese Americans and, and the history buffs, or is it going to be the Chicago natives? I think it's going to be folks who really love 1940s history in general. Uh-huh. They've already, already on the arc, I was caught because Aki opens up a beer and she pulls the tap. <laughs> You know, they didn't have tabs in 1940s. It was one of those can openers, right? With a little triangle. Yeah, yeah. And um, luckily, one of my um, colleagues at Soho, um, I, I haven't met him yet, but I want to, James Ben, he writes about uh, a series set in World War II. Right. And he's the one who told my editor, you know, because my focus <laughs> wasn't how do you open beer? <laughs> Well, okay, two things that I like to talk about this show besides books are music and food. And I'm going to ask you about food because I know you are in the know, Naomi. And I've been very upset in the past year and a half or so. Two of my favorite curry houses in town have closed down. So I want to know, where should my new Japanese curry spot be? What's the best place that you know of? I haven't gone here yet, but my girlfriend was a Curry House fan, and she really bemoaned the closure too. It's called Curryfornia. Yeah, check. That's apparently the uh, latest one. It's a combination of curry and California. It's in the South Bay. Oh. Yeah, and you have to get it early because it runs out. Curryfornia. Ah, oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I make my own, so. Um, sometimes. All right. I'm definitely, I'm de- well, it's uh, first, I'm going to stop by your place. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to taste the homemade and okay. then I'll check this place out. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, let's get to uh, our first guest. My first guest is author Andrea Bartz and her newest novel is We Were Never Here. It was a Reese's book club pick. So this is exciting news. The book explores the complex world of female friendships with a little murder thrown in there to turn up the heat. Now, Naomi, I assume uh, since you live right near where you were born and raised, you probably have some lifelong friends, right? People you've known since your childhood. You know, I still keep in touch with like maybe three or four preschool friends. Wow. Now, are there any of these people that you ever wonder uh, you, something happens and you think, gosh, do I really even know them at all? Well, you know, I guess thanks to the wonder of Facebook, I'm kind of, I get a fuller picture who of who they really are. So I don't think I'll be I'll be that surprised. I will say this, a lot of people have surprised me, so I, I'm not easy to shock. <laughs> if, even if a, a dead body turns up and one of your friends is a suspect? <laughs> you know what? I think during this pandemic, I'm ready for anything, unfortunately. I mean, I had to actually... Be, <laughs> no, this is a serious matter because I live in an eight-unit condo and I had to call the police. Uh, for a wellness check. Uh, but I didn't know that's what I was calling. I just said, oh, wow. I want to report a missing person. And yeah, and the police came and this woman, you know, she was found dead in her bedroom. I mean, I'm sorry to be so grim, but you oh, know, no. I know. And um, 
So I think I've been forever changed by this pandemic. I think this whole time has made me more proactive. Like if I think something is not right, um, I'm not going to just sit there and just hope that it's okay. I think I'm going to, you know, be more out there. Wow, good for you. Andrea, uh, welcome to the show and congratulations on We Were Never Here, the latest of your novels. Uh, I love a quote in your press materials that says that you are, quote, a master of the timely literary thriller. And I mean, is this something that you set out to do? Do you set out to do something that's uh, something that we're all thinking about? You write about things that are in the zeitgeist right now? It's an interesting question. I think I write about social milieu and issues and people that are interesting to me. And so I guess it's not surprising that they are interesting to other people too. And when people point that out, that there's something really timely about my book, it reminds me of being a magazine editor, which is what I did for years and years, where sort of part of the job was to have your finger on the pulse, but to also be thinking six months ahead. Because, um, you know, you would plan the December issue, you would start planning the December issue sometime in about June. Um, And so you were sort of living in the future in that sense. So I would say it's maybe not intentional, but it makes sense. So I think I just keep being fascinated by the same or similar things to um, a lot of readers. And um, if we're all interested in the same things, then, you know, I can keep writing books that hopefully entertain and engage the new one, We Were Never Here, it deals with female friendships, which I think seem to be at, at the core of, of most of your books. I mean, at a basic level, we can't deny there is something different about female friendships and male friendships, right? I think it's true. There are you know similarities in how we all relate to each other. But I think for me, my interest in um, writing about complex female friendships was in large part because the thriller space and sort of the psychological thriller space was really heavily about romantic relationships. Yeah. There's, you know, domestic noir is its own entire sort of subgenre that people want to put my books into. And that's sort of like the gone girl, girl on the train, all those. But domestic noir, it's this cloistered within a house situation that generally is about a primary romantic relationship, the widow or the widower or the ex-wife or the, you know, the couple that seems to have the perfect marriage, but what's really going on below the surface. And through much of my 20s and early 30s, I was single and I had lots of really complex female friendships. And I thought there's plenty of juicy stuff there. There's just as much juicy relational stuff going on with my friendships as with a a primary romantic relationship and I wanted to explore that and then within that there's a lot of space for me to try to wrestle with how sexism and misogyny and patriarchy and white supremacy and all these other forces sort of play out within these friendships and you know we're all products of our environment and like of course women have internalized sexism and um, these sort of ideas that are damaging or other women are your competition. And and, right. and it's really interesting because some people read my books and their takeaway is, oh, all these women are just mean to each other. And you, you write about women. That's very, that's very sexist that you write about women being mean to each other. <laughs> and I think, you know, people can take away whatever they want. But for me, that's missing the point. Whereas I'm trying to explore, um, yeah, how women who have been a product of their culture how that is um, infecting 
how they infecting and affecting how they relate to everyone, including their female friends. Well, I, I, the concept of, of the frenemy, is, I think, is a uniquely female relationship, right? <laughs> I think it's true. And I think, you know, women were sort of told from birth that it's okay for us to have more emotional expression, right? Mm -hmm. We are taught to take notice and respond to other people's emotions. We're taught to, you know, deal with our own emotions and have sort of emotional intelligence. Whereas men, the messaging, I should say boys, is very different. And, you know, we sort of don't reward men for, or boys for crying or, you know, dealing with emotions right. in different ways. And we do reward boys for, you know, being physical and boys will be boys and schoolyard fights are normal. And so it sort of makes sense to me that as boys are sort of ushered into the area of deal with your emotions physically, women are, are sort of nudged over to the side of deal with your issues verbally, non-verbally, emotionally, via sort of like psychologically, psychological warfare. I think a perfect example is like, look at a bunch of 10 year olds and the boys will probably be starting fights on the playgrounds and the girls will be, you know, having little clicks and starting a hate club and writing a mean note or having a rumor. <laughs> like it makes sense to me. And then grow those women up, throw in a murder and you've got yourself a thriller. Exactly. That's you've just <laughs> described the formula to my entire oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so in this book, you do an interesting thing, which I think really plays into the story really well, is because these women don't live, uh, you know, they're, they're, they've been very good friends for a long time, but they're not in the same city and they're not, they don't see each other every day. And they sort of come together on these vacations and, and I, you know, it gives the distance so that they can question, do I really know this person as well as I thought I did? And that's that, that to me was a very interesting way to, to set up these this relationship because it does bring in the questions of oh my gosh do I, I thought I knew who this person was or I thought I knew what this person may or may not be capable of it was someone that you live with someone that you see every day potentially could have a deep dark secret right yeah absolutely. I mean I think every good thriller is going to have some beat of or thread of wow I like how well do I really know X person that's close to me, the people who are closest to me, or even myself. I think, you know, for a thriller to be successful, there definitely needs to be some deep, dark secrets or impulses, stuff below the surface that the, the you know, your, your main character is working to sort of uncover. To give an example, if it's a murder mystery, it's not very interesting if there's this one evil, you know, <laughs> there's one clearly evil person from page one, and like, well, right. of course they did something bad. That's not fun. It's much more interesting when it's like, wow, this is not something I could imagine this person doing, but we all contain multitudes. So it's interesting you bring up their distance as, as a interesting choice because uh, I chose that a little bit randomly. I chose that because uh, the inspiration for the whole book came on a trip with a good friend whom I know from New York, where I live, but who has lived in Australia for the last few years. She's in no uh, other way anything like Kristen. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. But, you know, when I'm starting the book out, I'm I'm what's called a panther and not a plotter. I, I don't know where oh. the story is going. And so just sort of out of, I don't know, laziness or low-hanging fruit, I started out by giving them our dynamic. And then I definitely pulled on it later and can sort of um, use it and leverage it. And that distance made for an interesting um, interplay of closeness and, and, you know, emotional closeness and physical proximity. But yeah, that started out as sort of a random choice that then became relevant, which is how most of the interesting and relevant clues and red herrings and all those in my books begin. 
Wow, well, you're lucky that that those appear. Some some of us struggle to find those <laughs> those things. It's not yeah. until uh, the fourth or fifth draft you realize, hey, this might be better if they didn't live in the same city. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was lucky that that one panned out. But yeah, I definitely have had those moments of like, man, I'm making everything harder on myself. This one stupid decision I made on the first draft. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely done that too. All right. Well, you and I have not uh, met before, so uh, I'm, I'm going to dig back into some of the basics and uh, learn about a, a little bit of your history. You, you're, as you mentioned, you, you've been a journalist, uh, and I'm assuming that if anyone who writes in in another medium, that has to deeply affect writing fiction. Does that happen? Does it, does your training in journalism inevitably bleed onto the page as you're writing a novel? I guess so. I mean, it's hard for me to say because I've never tried being a novelist without being a <laughs> journalist before it. But the ways that I think it comes into play, um, well, A, what I mentioned earlier about just always looking for topics that are interesting and that I feel conflicted about. I'm always looking for, yes, yeah, things that catch my attention and I just can't get them out of my head often in an unpleasant way. And that's the way that I sort of deal with them is by writing. And that was in a journalistic or as an editor assigning a writer to take it on. <laughs> so I think sort of the, you know, magpie, intellectual magpie looking for interesting, shiny things definitely got drilled into me as a journalist. I was just always, I was never not looking for something that could turn into a story. And yeah. I think with the actual um, nuts and bolts of writing and revising, it really helps. I'm just used to working with deadlines. So, you know, people are, people are constantly saying, how are you so prolific? How can you write a book a year? And the answer is like, it's my job. I work out how much I need to write every day. And then I sit my butt in my feet and I don't get up until I have written that much. Um, yeah. And with revision, similar thing, I just work toward a, work toward a deadline. And the last thing is that my agent and editor have remarked on just how quote, well I take edits. I working as a journalist, working especially for, um, I primarily worked in women's magazines, Glamour, Self, things like that. The um, editors are known for just tearing your writing apart, just ripping it to shreds. So I was very used to that. So I'm very not precious about my writing. And so when, whenever my editor suggests something, you know, she'll be writing a big note of like, I just think it might be a tiny bit stronger if we didn't have the sentence here because blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, okay, delete. <laughs> like, no problem. <laughs> not a big deal. Not precious. Uh, so what what was or is there a, a single book or a single author that pushed you over the edge into I I want to write fiction this this is the path I want to go down now so what was that inspirational book or, or writer so it's a two part answer because the the more um, ten thousand foot view is that I always wanted to be writing books I look back on like journals from when I was a little kid and one that when there was like a you know a questionnaire of your best friend and favorite song and it says what you're going to be when you grow up I would write author because I loved books I loved reading but more more immediately to give a more exact answer um I knew I wanted to write something I was kicking around ideas and then a friend suggested the ton of French Dublin murder squad series and I sat down and I started reading and I think I didn't move for about three days and blasted through them. And I came out of it at the end, like feral and unwashed. And I was like, I want to write a murder mystery. <laughs> Those books, they were just so beautifully written and smart and character driven and psychological. And I just like, this is it. This is what I want to do next. Well, your first novel, The Lost Night, I'm, I'm always curious if the, your first published novel was your first written novel. Do you, are there a lot of trunk novels stashed away somewhere? 
In my case, I think I'm the rare, I think I'm the exception because it is the first novel I wrote. Now I will say the very first draft of it that I wrote had very little in common with the actual draft <laughs> that I used to query agents, but it was the first novel that I ever um, took on and, and wrote in full, which I think makes me the exception and not the rule. I think a lot of authors have one or more in, in the drawer, you know, manuscripts yeah, in yeah. the drawer. For sure. Well, for a Brooklyn gal, you avoided having the, you know, Scorsese film accent. Are you, are you born and bred in Brooklyn? <laughs> no, I'm actually from the Milwaukee area. Oh, okay. So, that, yeah, that much, of, much of We Were Never Here um, is set in Milwaukee. And it was the first time I set something in my hometown. So I hope I did it proud. But I used to speak with the A's and the O's of the Midwest. And when I talk to my parents, it still all, you know, comes back. Uh-huh. Um, but for the most part, I, I think I have a pretty neutral, not New York way of speaking, despite being yes. here for 13 years. All right. Well, my next guest is SF Kosa. She is the author of The Night We Burned, which is about a woman trying to hide her past involvement in a cult from the people in her life now. But of course, that hidden past and the details of how the cult came to a fiery end threatened to come to light unless she can keep that past hidden. Uh, Naomi, are, are you like me? Cults are just endlessly fascinating, aren't they? Yes. And there's um, yeah, a kind of a cult that still exists in my town and people I know were a part of it. It just freaks me out that this one leader, I might be standing in line in tra- Trader Joe's and he might be right behind me. So it freaks me out, but I'm very interested <laughs> as well. <laughs> it seems like uh, it, no matter what you think goes on behind closed doors, when the truth finally comes out, it's always stranger than we ever imagined. <laughs> And it's really strange when people you know were part of something, you know? They're out now, but just the way that a, le- a charismatic leader can really affect people. Yeah, that that actually shocks me. And, and maybe that's why I am interested in cults at a distance. <laughs> well, then I have I got a book for you. <laughs> Well, SF Kosa, thank you uh, for uh, coming to the show. Uh, the Night We Burned is your second novel, and yet it's not. Not by a long shot, because you have had a long and successful career in uh, both YA and urban fantasy under your your full given name, Sarah Fine. Uh, so you, you were not satisfied with conquering those two worlds. You had to come over and, and, and play in the psychological thriller world, huh? Yeah, it was something I had wanted to do for a really long time. Um, I am a psychologist, clinical psychologist uh, by training and profession. And so I think I had been edging towards a more psychological thriller genre for a while. For example, my last or one of my last YA novels, Uncanny, is actually like a futuristic sci-fi novel, but it is also a psychological thriller. So I was edging in that direction already and then just made the jump. Yeah. Well, it seems like such a natural fit, like you say, with, with your your background. I, I mean, I would think a, a PhD in clinical psychology, to, to me, it seems like that should be almost a prerequisite for any writer. I mean, it's, it gets to the core of, of creating characters and understanding them fully, right? 
Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. You know, I read, obviously, I read a lot, and especially in uh, my current genre in psychological thrillers, uh, which is an, another thing that made me want to write them. Um, but I have to say that, you know, there are a plethora of amazing authors who are basically amateur psychologists, and they're very astute about yeah. human dynamics. They can capture just the nuances of personality and uh, relationship dynamics in a way that I really admire. And I think that that's not terribly unusual in the genre. So I would say we have a lot of amateur psychologists out there <laughs> who do a very good job. Now, was any of the motivation, though, uh, reading a lot of books and thinking like, oh, come on, no, you, you, you missed the mark on this one. So you had to get in there and show them how it's really done? <laughs> Actually, no. I mean, I have had that feeling with certain books, like before I started writing and before I knew how challenging writing a novel actually was, I did have that kind of hubris of like, oh, I could do better than this. And then I actually wrote a novel and realized how how challenging it is. Uh But um, no, I would say that one of the things that excited me about psychological thrillers was the challenge of it. Um, because I really admire the sort of puzzle box that a lot of authors build in terms of, you know, when you read it, you're from the very beginning as a reader, one of the pleasures is kind of trying to figure it out. Like what is going on with this book, the twists or whatever. And, you know, readers are actually really savvy. You know, those who read a lot in this genre, just, you know, they've seen a lot uh, and it's hard to surprise them. So that's, a really fun challenge as well. So I think most of what I was excited by was the challenge of it and not just of building the twists and the, you know, a plot that's really tight, but also for me, um, after 21 books, basically set in various fantasy worlds, um, (laughs) I was finally writing in a world where I couldn't pull like a, you know, magical system out of my pocket to say, <laughs> I had to actually stick with the laws of physics and, uh, you know, the contemporary world. Well, in the new one, The Night We Burned, uh, at its core, it has something that I think we're all fascinated with on some level, which is cults. And Dora Rodriguez, she has a dark past that involves a cult that uh, that ended very badly, as they so often do. And it's a past that she wants to keep hidden. Now, psychologically speaking, is it not a good thing sometimes to to want to keep certain parts of of your history hidden? Or or are we all bottling things up that are going to explode at some point? Well, that's actually that is actually a really interesting and good question. So part of your job as a developing human, right, as you know, from childhood onward, is to learn and set the boundaries between yourself and the outside world. And um, everybody has, you know, sort of a different set of boundaries. We have them, you know, for our intimate loved ones, our family members, you know, and then our friends and society, co-workers, you know, life is about setting healthy boundaries, not just about setting limits with people like saying no when you need to say no, but also about what you disclose, when is it healthy or safe to disclose those things, because really not in all situations is it okay to just reveal everything about yourself without expecting some consequences. And there are all sorts of cultural differences and expectations with this as well. So it's a really complicated dynamic and process that um, as human beings, we go through on a moment by moment basis. But for Dora, 
she's she looks back on her past and i think a lot of people who have been involved in these high control groups otherwise known as cults experience a lot of shame because there's a lot of stigma attached to the public's understanding of what it means to have been a part of these groups people assume that uh, individuals who have been parts of these groups are weak-minded, they're particularly gullible or unintelligent, right. um, which all of those things are not true. That's one of the things I tried to show in the book, but also the Dora's very realistic sense of um, shame and fear at being uh, exposed as a member of this group. And her fear goes actually beyond just that shame because she's yeah. afraid of her own culpability, <laughs> potentially criminal culpability uh, <laughs> in her involvement with what went down. Um, so for her, you know, she's looking at it as sort of a, calculation. How do I continue to live this very fragile house of cards life that I've built as lonely as it is, you know, how do I keep myself like out of jail? And (laughs) it's not just about, you know, her emotional freedom and liberation. It is also about her personal freedom. Yes. And you do such an interesting thing with Dora in the job that you give her because she is a fact checker whose life is, you know, about a strict adherence to the truth and, and, and the facts. And yet here she is trying to obscure the reality as those around her dig deeper. Everything in her nature is, is this dichotomy of mm-hmm. seeking facts and yet hiding facts. <laughs> yes, I am so glad you asked that because my idea for the book actually started out simply as a fact checker who changes facts. That's where it started. It didn't actually start with a cult. But where I started was after several years of sort of observing in the media this, you know, a lot of things that I took for granted uh, in the way the news is reported um, were suddenly being challenged and, you know, all of these, you know, accusations of fake news flying around. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, okay, what does it mean to what do facts mean? to us, you know, and how do we hold on to those like pieces of objective truth? (laughs) What does that even mean? And so I started there and I was like, what if a fact checker changes facts? I actually pitched that idea to my husband who immediately said, how dare you don't go there? (laughs) It's like an ethical responsibility. You can't have a fact checker who changes facts. And I was like, no, but that's really interesting. And why would she want to do that? That's sort of how I, I spooled back all the way to, well, <laughs> of course, maybe she was in a cult. Of course. <laughs> to, me, it made, to me, it made complete sense because I thought, okay, here's a woman who was basically gaslighted, right? That's a lot of what cults do is they make you doubt your own mind. That's how um, the leaders achieve control is that if you don't trust your own mind or what's in front of you and you're given uh, access to only certain very skewed pieces of information, it's very hard to cling to things that feel real. And so I could see how this woman who had been through that experience and survived it might find it very comforting to make her living verifying and, you know, sort of identifying little kernels of truth down to a date, the correct spelling of a name. For Dora, that piece of her identity was of core importance, this fidelity to the truth, and then is fundamentally challenged 
when her colleague decides to report on this murder that's linked to a, a cult that she yeah. was involved with and a massacre <laughs> that she feels very responsible for. Right. Uh, well, I have uh, two daughters and people have asked me over the years how I managed to write so much. How could you be so prolific with, with kids in the house? And uh, am I right? You have five kids and you've managed to pump out all these books. I do. I have, I have five, not all of whom I gave birth to, but all of whom I delight in and not all of whom are at home anymore because okay. we are, my husband and I are steadily loading them into the catapult and launching them into the <laughs> That's how it feels. We have our 20 year olds uh, is off in college. We have just had an 18 year old graduate and she oh. is starting college. Uh, and then we have, you know, a 16 year old, a 13 year old and an almost 12 year old. So oh. it's busy. But they're very understanding, you know, when I like, I might put a sign out on my door <laughs> that says like mom's in her cubby. Uh-huh. I think like all writers, uh, you just have to sort of like try to cram in your writing time. Well, yeah. writing YA, did they ever act as uh, beta readers for you? Actually, at the time I was writing YA, they were really young. There were some, when I first started writing books, they were, I just felt like they were a little too, even the YA books were a little too edgy for my young kid. <laughs> but at this point, even our youngest has read most of my YA books. I would every once in a while start asking them questions about uh-huh you know, language use and things like that. I actually think I moved out of YA before most of my kids moved into adolescence. Okay. Maybe I missed my shot there. <laughs> uh, well, I, I always uh, like to talk about music on this show whenever I get a chance. Uh, it's, it's my other passion. Uh, and it, I noticed a, a very interesting tidbit on your website there. So you, you identify that you have the musical tastes of an adolescent boy. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> Well, depending on what I am writing, I like to put on, like for a long time when I was writing action scenes, I would put on like the Call of Duty soundtrack. <laughs> uh, especially there was one that Trent Reznor did that I particularly enjoyed. Um, so I would listen to a lot of like industrial metal or I was a big fan of Linkin Park, you know, possibly slightly more obscure and slightly... Uh, more linked to the 90s bands uh, before that was my my youth. Um, that's, that's, you, you, you can't get more obscure 90s than we've, and then you, if you're talking to me, <laughs> so, I, 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 can, I, got, I still got a whole crate in my garage of my old band CDs. I could send you one. <laughs> I miss Tool. Those yes. are my favorites. All right. Okay. So maybe an old, maybe that adolescent boy has grown up a bit, but <laughs> when your tastes are somewhat edgier and heavier than your actual teenage son, then um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't care to analyze it. <laughs> Finally today is author Claire Douglas. Claire's latest thriller is Then She Vanishes, and it joins a long line of her psychological thrillers set in England, where she lives. You know, I always like to talk to writers from other countries, and I find more and more that I find far more similarities in books from foreign lands than there are differences. Would you you agree with that, Naomi? Yeah, I think um, there are similarities, yet I, as a Japanese-American sometimes, I feel more connected to the European police procedurals because I feel there's more like a restraint of response. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and I, I I relate to that more than like the American ones. Yeah, l- less uh, kicking in a door with a gun in your hand kind of approach. <laughs> right, right. Or some of them are kind of philosophical, you know, and I, I appreciate that. Claire, then she vanishes uh, is about a case long ago and also a case that's happening right now. So I want to know, where where did this book start for you? Did it start in the past or in the present? Yes, yeah, so it starts in um, 2012. So I've sort of set it back, but because that, that was sort of like a quite around that time, there was quite a lot of um, controversial issues going on with some of the journalists in London. And mm-hmm. because there's a little bit of that in the story, that's one of the reasons why I set it then. But then it goes back to the 1990s. So it's like a two timeline sort of story. Yeah. Yeah. But when when you were coming up with the with the story, did, did did was the first blush of the story the the things that happened in the nineties or the things that happened in the, in the more contemporary times? The more contemporary times. So so we, I got the idea because I used to be a journalist myself. Mm-hmm. So I I just remember thinking, what is if I covered a story and it happened to be about somebody that I was at school with and really close to? So that sort of gave me that sort of like spark of the idea. And then it sort of went from there, really. So that, that was the initial idea was what if you're a journalist and you're covering a story that's a big story and the person is someone that you were really good friends with once years ago. That's good. It sounds like it was not inspired by someone you actually know who, no. uh, who was involved in anything <laughs> nefarious. Yeah, no. Thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> that's good. But come on, we all go to school with some sketchy characters that you wouldn't yeah. be surprised 10 years later oh, no. to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what uh, so uh, what sketchy stuff was going on uh, with journalism uh, around uh, 2012 what, what, well, there was, what there was a that? lot of um, well I think it still probably does go on but there was a lot of like phone hacking and things like that that was oh, going on yeah, do you remember yeah. that whole and there was a whole cash for questions scandal um so so when my main character Jess she was a journalist in London and she gets she got involved in that whole cash for questions thing which was a bit you know and so then she was sort of like sacked and then went back to her hometown and worked on a local newspaper. So that's her background. So that was yeah. one of the reasons why I had to say <laughs> 2012. <laughs> Look, any book that we, we're going to try to set in 2020, 2021 for the next 10, 15 years, I think we're I all going to sort of avoid, there's going to be this little gap in <laughs> exactly. readership. <laughs> exactly. Nobody's going to read about this, are they? Nobody's going to read about COVID or anything like that. No. <laughs> Well, uh, you've you've segued perfectly into into my next question here, which is you you did spend uh, many years as a reporter, and uh, I feel like there's a really fine line between a journalist and a private detective, and and so when when you're writing a character, they almost have the same job in a lot of ways, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's quite nice writing from a character like that because you haven't got you're not bogged down with the whole police stuff. So considering I haven't got any background in the police, it'd be really hard for me to write as a police person. So yeah, so as a journalist, I sort of feel like I've got I've got my own experience. So I can sort of, even though I didn't do anything quite exciting as of what Jess does, it, you've got like that. You can sort of, you could be a little bit sort of free with it, you know, more than you would if it was a policeman, I think. Did you have a specialist uh, beat when you were uh, a journalist? Are you covering no. the royals or something? <laughs> no, <laughs> it was anything. I was sent off everywhere to do anything. Most of the time it was like hanging around famous people's houses to see if you could try and get a quote, which you never could because obviously they don't <laughs> want to talk to you. <laughs> Uh, well, so then she vanishes. It's it's uh, I, I didn't count them all up, but you you have several thrillers uh, and yeah. 
I, I instead of me uh, doing the research here, I'm going to make you do the work for me here. <laughs> what do you think is is a common thread through your characters in, yeah. in your novels? I, I like. I think that it's. I, I like to think that it's the thrillers where the things that happen to them could happen to anybody. So mm. it's just like the normal people who, you know, friendships, relationships, whatever, mostly friendships, actually. I'm sort of more interested in writing about friendships more than relationships with the opposite sex. But um, yeah, and I think that these sort of things could happen to anybody. So, you know, for example, you could find out that someone you went to school with did allegedly did this crime or, you know, just those type of things. You sort of stumbled into something by accident that you know could happen to really anyone i suppose yeah well it's interesting i one of the other authors that i'm talking to for this episode we we talked about a similar thing which is the the friendships or the relationships that you have like especially among female friends yeah it, it's it's quite often in uncharted territory for thrillers they focus more on the marriages and and, yeah. and sort of domestic partnership kind of thing but just a, an adult female friendship is just equally yeah. as fraught with pitfalls and, and yeah. dangers as, yeah. as you know, a marriage, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think some of the intense friendships we we have when we're grown up, I think that's what I'm, I find really interesting. That you know, when they're like a, they're almost like a first relationship, aren't they? You, you know, your first best friend. And I think that that's why this appealed to me. That you know, Heather and Jess were like so close at one point. She thought she knew everything about her, and then for her to find out 20 years later that she had done something like this. You know, I think we could all remember our first really close friend. Yeah. And that's sort of always special in that way because of that. Now, do any of your uh, best mates from school read, read your books and think, hey, what do you, that's, is that supposed to be me in there? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I sometimes wonder if they would think that. Because especially the character of Heather, she looks, she very physically looks like my old best friend. So uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure if she does read it, she might be thinking, hmm. Got the same color hair, the same features, <laughs> <laughs> but she's not. You know, she's not done a crime. My old best friends. That's okay. Good. <laughs> that's what I know. <laughs> Being a novelist, you have said was a dream since you were a, a very young girl, and I have to know now you're you're deep in it. You're you're having great success. Is it everything that you dreamed when you were just a child? <laughs> I think it's more than I sort of imagined, really. I think, yeah, I, I think I just couldn't see past that very first book. So when I was growing up, all I wanted was that one book to be published. So to even think that I could go beyond that and have, you know, as a career to actually do this as a living, I think that is something I couldn't, I don't think I even I thought was possible growing up. I just thought, I just, all I remember thinking is I just want one book, one book out, one book on the shelves. And were, were was it always going to be thrillers or were, did you... Well try no. different genres or, or... yeah i started off writing like rom-coms like romantic comedies huh. which is quite different um but i don't think i was funny enough if i'm honest i think <laughs> you've got to be quite you've got to be quite funny haven't you and and trying to translate that onto a page is quite difficult yeah. i sort of realized that my books are darker than i think i thought you know as i like my first book was the sisters and that started off as a romantic comedy but then it became wow. quite a dark <laughs> like a dark story <laughs> So I thought, okay, this isn't really going to be romantic comedy. This is going to be a dark, sort of obsessional tell. So yeah. Do you, do you think with with writers like is is this genre, the style that that we write, is it just sort of inherent in us, and it's pointless to fight against it like that, or or do you think yeah. you can mold yourself? Like if you wanted to say, okay, I've have a lot of books under my belt. I I yeah. know how to do this clearly. 
I want to write my rom-com. Yeah. I mean, you could make yourself do that, right? I, I think I don't, it's hard, isn't it? I don't know. I think I'm almost scared to now because I'm, I've sort of got myself into this now and I sort of know what I'm doing. Well, I think, you know, most of the time I feel like I know what I'm doing. Not always. <laughs> but with rom-coms, it's like a whole different thing. And you're like, what if? I don't know. I, th- I think that the, the, the comedy thing, I think, would be quite hard. The comedy, the beat. Like, my, my favourite sort of rom-com authors, they are really funny. And, like, uh-huh. you know, it's really quite hard to write, like, that like witty, you know, dialogue. And I think I think almost, to me, rom-coms are harder to write, I think, than thrillers. <laughs> For me, anyway. <laughs> you would hope that, that those comedy authors feel the same way about thrillers. They probably they probably look at the stuff you write and think, oh, I could never puzzle out that mystery and, and drop clues and, and, you know, twist and reveals that. That must seem difficult to them, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? Because I sort of think, I think with a rom-com, you, have, you still do have all the twists, but I think you also have the added pressure of being, of, of being funny or being, you know, romantic. I don't know. But then I suppose, yeah, yeah maybe it is a natural thing because... I never. I did try to get rom coms published, and they got turned down. So maybe it was just wasn't for me. Yeah, maybe I've just I'm naturally better at writing darker. Yeah, things. You found your voice, and then and, and it's yeah. working for you. Yeah. Strange, isn't it though? I never really thought about it before, but I think yeah, because I had also loved I love historical fiction as well. Hmm. But I think if I wrote a historical fiction, it'd have to be a thriller, <laughs> a thriller <laughs> set in the olden days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you were going to write a historical fiction, you live in the perfect place to do research because I, I was reading a little bit about where you live in Bath, and uh, it, it seems like a fascinating town. Well, first of all, does it is it pain you the way I say that? No, <laughs> I, I apologize. I yeah, no, no, because it's true. I think Bath is so interesting because I'm not from Bath. Like, I'm not actually. So I didn't grow up here, but since moving back, I do. I think it is it is such a, because it's got such history and I think it is quite inspiring. I think I sometimes wonder if if it wasn't for the moving back, would I have written my first book? Because my first book was all set in Bath and it and it gave me, you know, it inspired me, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do think, I think you're right. I think it is, you know, it's a very interesting place. Well, yeah, well, because living in Los Angeles, uh, anything before the 1900s, yeah, doesn't exist for us. I mean, this is yeah. this is a town that was entirely built in in the twentieth century. Yeah. Uh, but I've looked at Bath. the The town was founded in one A.D. I know in one. That's oh, that's wow. absurd to me. I know it's mad, and they've still got they've still got like the Roman baths, yeah, which you know which are really famous, and people come to you know go and see. But and you know it's amazing. It is amazing. And do you live in a, in a three hundred year old house that you're just no. like, oh yeah, whatever? <laughs> no, I live in like a nineteen fifties house, but I've got views from my window. I can see the nice houses okay. <laughs> from where I am. But no, I don't live in one of the really nice Georgian ones. They are beautiful though. They are lovely. <laughs> uh, well, I, all right. Well, I, I look forward to when when you dive in and, and do your historical novel. I, th- I think I think it's in you. I, th- I think yeah. I think a historical thriller with yeah. comedy. Layered over <laughs> yeah, on top. Comedy. <laughs> but I would love to. I'll, I'll try. Maybe I have to change my name. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, uh, Claire, I, uh, thank you for talking to me. Congratulations uh, on Then She Vanishes. Well, this is uh, another and in, in a long line of these of these thrillers. That se- it seems like anyone in your life should be afraid that uh, eventually they're going to inspire you to think of some sort of dark fate for them or. <laughs> I mean, any writer of dark fiction, it has to be terrible to be friends with us, right? Because 
eventually they're going to do or say something that we're going to go, oh, hey, no. Yeah, I'm going to kill you off now. <laughs> Make you do something really bad. <laughs> Well, well done, Naomi. You have been a phenomenal guest host. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Eric. And the books sound really fascinating, and I can't wait to dig in. Well, congratulations also on Clark and Division. Uh, this is a book that's I think is not only for mystery fans, but also historical fiction fans, uh, coming-of-age story fans, and for people who want to read about a part of mid-century U.S. history that uh, they might not know about and uh, probably should. Yep, I hope um, people, yeah, pick it up. Yeah, well, I hope I start to get to get to see you in person again soon. I feel like we're, we were almost there, and then it was like, uh, not so fast. Right, the rug was pulled <laughs> from underneath this, but it'll, it'll, we'll get there. We'll get there, Eric. Yes, yes. All right, well, I look forward to uh, seeing what uh, part of our nation's past you unearth next time and, and what kind of mystery you, you wrap it in. So I'll be, I'll be waiting for that. Uh, people can always find us on Twitter at Writer Types. We love it when you subscribe to the show. I'll be back soon with more great authors. And as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.